It's Friday, April 16th, 2021, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. When you think of an academic in an environmental field, what comes to mind? Who do you picture? Is it a biologist in hip waders now collecting samples from a creek? Maybe a researcher in a lab working on clean energy technologies? Maybe you imagine a climatologist at a computer poring over data or building a forecasting model. What about an English professor specializing in 19th century British novels? No? Well, in the emerging field of environmental humanities, literary scholars work alongside historians, anthropologists, linguists, and thinkers from a whole range of humanistic disciplines, exploring the relationship between humans and the non-human world we inhabit. Our guest on this episode says environmental humanists and their STEM counterparts are really engaged in the same project, just from a different angle. So although I think we're ultimately, if, if you're an environmental humanist, you're trying to study the same kind of thing that an environmental scientist studies. That is, you're trying to study how humans and human society relates to and has impact on the natural world and vice versa. We're doing it from the human perspective. That conversation's coming up right after this news update. federal bill introduced earlier this week would establish a program to plug, remediate, and reclaim orphaned oil and gas wells across the country. The Revive Economic Growth and Reclaim Orphaned Wells Act of 2021, also known as the Regrow Act, was introduced by U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota and Senator Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico. In the U.S., there are over 56,000 documented orphan wells, or abandoned oil and gas wells with no party responsible for their care. These wells can pose safety risks, leak methane, and contaminate groundwater. Funding for plugging and reclaiming these wells has been limited in the past. If passed, the Regrow Act would provide over $4 billion in funding for orphan well cleanup on state and private lands, where most of the orphan wells are in the U.S. The bill would also provide $4 million for orphan well cleanup on public and tribal lands, $32 million for related research development and implementation, and create or retain thousands of oil and gas jobs. This week, more than 300 businesses and investors called on the Biden administration to set more ambitious goals to address climate change. Prominent corporations like Apple and Walmart signed on to the open letter, organized by the We Mean Business Coalition. The letter called for a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50% below 2005 levels by 2030, nearly double the United States' previous target. The Biden administration has already committed to achieving a 100% clean energy economy and net zero emissions by 2050. Business leaders say that the 2030 target will be necessary to reach the administration's 2050 goal, as well as spur economic growth and create jobs. On the state level, companies are also pushing for climate policy to help the private sector make the clean energy transition and invest in more sustainable practices. The president of Mars Wrigley North America, which has operations in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, wrote an article for the Philadelphia Inquirer in support of Pennsylvania joining the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, a market-based cooperative effort among eastern states to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Mars is one of nearly two dozen companies in Pennsylvania urging the state to join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. New research from Penn State's College of Agricultural Science has uncovered a potential strategy for monitoring and possibly trapping spotted lanternflies. According to the research from the laboratory of Tom Baker, Recently published in the Journal of Insect Behavior, the invasive insects are drawn to vertical objects such as telephone poles. The research found that they will turn and land on a pole when less than 10 feet away, and a large proportion of lanternflies that attempt to launch themselves from the pole will return there. 
Researchers hope that this information, when coupled with the fact that lanternflies can't fly very far, without the help of air currents to carry them to higher altitudes, will provide new ways to document the presence of the insect. For Pennsylvania Legacies, I'm Lily Jones. Allegheny College in Crawford County is an environmental and sustainability leader in higher education. Last year, it became the first college or university in the state to achieve carbon neutrality, earning a 2020 Western Pennsylvania Environmental Award from Peck. Allegheny also offers highly regarded degree programs in environmental science and sustainability and in environmental studies, emphasizing the increasingly interdisciplinary nature of the field. And students from a variety of academic concentrations are encouraged to explore the ecological dimension of their studies through coursework offered by faculty like John McNeil Miller. He's a professor of English and one of Allegheny's leading environmental humanists. As it happens, Peck's Lily Jones, who you just heard giving the news, is a recent graduate of Oberlin College, where she double majored in English and Environmental Studies, focusing on the intersection of the two. Given that background and Lily's interest in the subject, we thought she would be just the person to host this interview. So with that, I'm going to hand the microphone back to Lily Jones. Here's her conversation with Allegheny College professor John Miller. I work on you know, the intersection of a couple different fields. I'm technically trained as a Victorianist, meaning I study 19th century British literature, but I also work on these more amorphous interdisciplinary fields of animal studies and the environmental humanities. What that means is, well, if you think about the kind of person we typically imagine studying the non-human world, studying animals, studying natural systems, I, I think most of us think of a, of a scientist, a natural scientist in particular. The environmental humanities is this very broad umbrella term that tries to it tries to capture or encompass the many different ways that we might study the natural world from scholarly perspectives that are outside the sciences so that can include you know people who are housed in in history departments or or who are just sort of history buffs right Uh, literary scholars philosophers and ethicists theologians you know people from all sorts of different fields who tend to study as their as their primary object texts or, or other records of human beliefs and, and human values uh, and human thoughts and expression, but who are interested in studying those things to try to understand humans' relationship to the non-human world, to the environment. What brought you to this field? Did you have an important experience with the environment growing up or how did you get here? <laughs> <laughs> What's my origin story? When I was a kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then when I got a little bit older and went to college, I thought I wanted to be a biologist. In particular, I wanted to be a parasitologist was my thing. I was interested in parasites. Um, <laughs> and then when I, when I started taking classes, I, I knew I was also interested in literature. You know, like I liked, I liked like writing poems and stuff. And so I was taking classes and thinking maybe it'd be a bio-English double major. And I found that as much as I loved learning about the natural world, I didn't like the work of being a scientist. Um, I didn't, I didn't enjoy being in a lab. I didn't get to do a lot of field work, but I think I probably would have had mixed feelings if I had. And I felt like I wasn't enjoying what I was learning in the classroom. I felt like the average textbook gave me what I wanted from the sciences. And I I liked reading textbooks and I still like reading them. I still read them today. But I felt like when I was studying English literature, I was learning so much about sort of 
not just the culture around me, um, but also about myself and my relation to it. Um, and I felt like it was just very exciting. And I felt like I couldn't do, uh, I couldn't get outside of the English classroom what I was getting within it. Whereas I felt like in the, the biological sciences, you know, I could, I could learn about this stuff. I could keep up with the science section of the New York Times and, and learn what I wanted to know. Didn't need to be taking classes in it. So I sort of, you know, I, I became an English major, I was still a bio minor, but I just sort of shelved the idea of going into the sciences because I didn't like the actual like on the ground work. And then later, I, you know, when I decided I wanted to become a literary scholar and I went to grad school, that was when I discovered that there were these, you know, like exciting, emerging interdisciplinary fields of the environmental humanities and, and, and animal studies where I could suddenly like bring back together what I, what I loved and couldn't figure out how to reconcile when I was, when I was in, in undergrad. I already loved both of these things and didn't know how they fit together. And that moment in grad school when I realized I could do that was when it all clicked into place and then, and I was hooked and I've been loving it ever since. It does feel like you can kind of have it all in yeah. a way with um, this kind of field since it is so interdisciplinary and you kind of have to be aware of what's going on in the natural sciences and the social sciences when you're writing about people and the environment. It's all connected. That's the basic ecological insight, right? Everything is interconnected, but, but it's true, you know, intellectually and knowledge-wise too. And it's, it's impossible to know everything and you're going to make mistakes, but at least try to tackle these, these areas that were artificially kept apart for, for so long. So although I think we're ultimately, if, if you're an environmental humanist, you're, you're trying to study the same kind of thing that an environmental scientist studies. That is, you're trying to study how humans and human society relates to and, and has impact on the natural world and vice versa. We're doing it from the human perspective rather than from this, this perspective of studying the dynamics of natural systems. Can you give some examples of questions that you might ask the, about that relationship or about the, the natural world and people? Sure. In a very big picture sense, I think environmental humanists are very interested in studying how values and beliefs shape the history of human interactions with other creatures. And so we're willing to, instead of tasked with the problem of thinking through values and what we should do, right? Rather than simply sort of like how things work and how what we do impacts the natural world. Um, environmental humanists think about sort of like how do beliefs shape what we have done and what should we do? You know, how do, how do we get here and where should we go? From a literary perspective, you know, as, as someone who's, who's housed in an English department, I don't spend a ton of time, you know, making like policy recommendations or something like that. That feels sort of out of my wheelhouse. But I will think about the question of, say, how the language that we use to describe another species might affect our relationship to it. Or something that really interests me is actually how the, how the form of a typical field guide, right? Like the kind of guide that you would bring out with you if you wanted to study, I don't know, mushrooms or you're, you're getting into birding or whatever. How does the form of that field guide and how does the language used in it condition you to see other creatures as interesting in some ways and not interesting in other ways, right? What does it train your attention on and what does it lead you to not think enough about or to overlook. So all these questions of how, how texts and how, and how art and images, how they sort of provide these filters or screens that dictate how we see and how we care about the natural world, those are the kinds of things that, that interest me as a, as a literary scholar in the environmental humanities. When I was in school, I had studied field guides for my senior capstone. So awesome. I have spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about field guides as literature. That is so great. And it's so rare, I think, to, to do that. I, I try in my, my sort of like staple environmental humanities course that is offered every year is this literature about the environment course. And one portion of that course is always giving students field guides, like letting them check them out from the library and 
having them try to navigate those field guides to identify new species and think about what kinds of questions they couldn't answer just using those field guides. It takes a while for people to realize that they can sort of question what is or isn't put into these seemingly relatively scientific and objective documents, right? But once you begin to see that and realize that even the presentation of seemingly objective data is shaped by values and priorities about what should and shouldn't be included, um, you begin to realize just how, you know, how pervasive cultural norms are in shaping our relationship to other creatures. How do you think literature can play a role in shaping those understandings or addressing climate change and trying to think about how we're interacting with the environment or our, our natural world? It's a great question, a really, really huge one. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of different ways that literature can be productive to these kinds of conversations. If you, if you sort of look back historically, there are a few really good examples of a single literary work or a single author who, who, who's represented a sort of watershed moment in you know, British or American consciousness in our relationship towards other creatures. There, there, are, there are examples of this. And those are the kind of people I think that we, that we think about immediately when we think about like nature writing and literature about the natural world. So, you know, like Rachel Carson writing about, writing about birds and writing about the seashore in the 50s and 60s. There are people like that who, you know, stand out as these towering examples of literature actually sort of making something happen in the real world. Or, you know, like a lot of our ideas about nature now I would argue, can be traced to the Romantic movement and to, to people like William Wordsworth and his vision of nature as this place that we go to to, to be refreshed and recharged um, and to escape from society. And I think that there are cases like that. And it's great to, it's great to, um, to think about the power of those individual works to shape broader ideas. Um, a lot of what I think is so valuable about literature and studying literature to understand our relationship to the natural world is not necessarily focusing on individual authors or works who change things. It's often about, um, at least in the classroom, it's often about trying to get students to realize the way that attitudes or ideas that they thought were either purely individual or were even purely sort of like factual and objective um, are in fact fed by this much larger set of cultural attitudes that has its own history. And so what happens, I think, when you, at least what I try to do in the classroom is I try to throw a lot of literature on the table that represents different cultures, different subcultures, and different historical eras. And what will happen then, I think, is that, you know, I'll see students who, who read a work and just love it, right? Like they just, when they read it, they recognize themselves and their attitudes, maybe things they couldn't even put words to before. And these beliefs are suddenly sort of reflected back to them and it's clarifying and it's awesome. And there's this powerful sense for these students that this particular work is, is deeply relatable and it's, and it's right, you know? And then they might see another work in the same semester and say, oh, like, I don't, like, how could anyone think this about another creature or about um, the natural world? You know, like, it's, it's wrong. And it might even be like morally wrong, not just, not just factually wrong. And there's a whole array of responses that, that happen when you get people to engage with the words and ideas of others. But then I think enable them to see their own perspective as just, just one option in a much wider array of, of, of cultural possibilities for seeing the, the non-human world. And I think that there's, a, there's, there's real value in the way that, at least if you take a wide enough variety of voices and examine their attitudes towards the non-human world, you create a sort of like a, a menu for different possibilities of different possible attitudes, different possible approaches that many people might not have considered before. And also you force, you force people to, to, to think hard about where their own ideas come from and whether they like where they come from and whether that's whether they really ever chose their ideas or whether they were just sort of absorbed through the wider the wider cultural context. So I think that that's that's a big service that literature can provide, literature about the natural world. It's just really these these windows and onto other perspectives historically 
and culturally. I think one really interesting thing that literature does is it really foregrounds language and the way that linguistic choices shape our understanding of the world. We are constantly telling stories, whether we mean to or not. Even when we think we're speaking purely factually, we often shape our ideas and communicate our ideas through some kind of narrative. We often draw upon analogies and, and, and metaphors and, and symbols, and we think of them as these sort of useful tools and ornaments for our thought, but we don't think of them as important bits of the content that they're conveying, that we're trying to convey. The nice thing about literature, at least capital L literature anyway, is that it, it really foregrounds those devices, right? Like it's a place where you're not so concerned with like factual content. You're thinking a lot about like, if you open a novel, like, okay, what's the plot here? What is the narrative structure that I'm trying to follow? If you look at a poem, you're not thinking about like, oh, what, what kind of factual information can I glean from this? You're really paying attention, if you're looking at it the right way, I think, um, to the metaphors and to the symbols um, and to the words and what they do. And while literature is the place where these, these devices are foregrounded, they do really saturate our language everywhere. And, and I would argue, I think most literary scholars would, most environmental humanists probably would. They really do shape our values, right? Like the, the kinds of metaphors that we almost unconsciously absorb and draw on to describe another creature, you know, like if we call them invasive versus, versus non-native or something like that, right? These sort of seemingly unimportant linguistic choices that, that structure how we talk. Also, I would argue structure how we think. And if, if you study literature, you get a chance to sort of think about these devices outside of the context of, of real practical applications um, and to really see them foregrounded so that then later on, when you are thinking about how you want to frame, I don't know, an environmental policy or an argument about a kind of ecological impact, you have the ability to pay attention to the kinds of language people are using and the kinds of values it might be conveying. And you can think a little bit more conscientiously about the kind of language you're using and the kind of values you want to convey to other people. So for people who don't have formal training in literature or the humanities, do you have suggestions for how people could maybe start shifting to adopting those kinds of behaviors and maybe mindsets about language and the kinds of cultural narratives that we tell? Oof, that's a great question, right? Like outside of, outside of the classroom, how can, you, how can you teach yourself to think and, and to learn this way? Um, I mean, I think it's an ongoing educational process, you know, even for, for those of us who, who do it full time. I think step one is, is trying to expose yourself to different, different traditions of nature writing. I think that generally, if you are drawn to the natural world and you find yourself in a, in a career where you're engaging with it, you might know a few touchstones of the environmental movement and, and literature about the environment and nature writing. Um, you, know, you might have read some John Muir um, or Aldo Leopold or whoever, right? Um, or Rachel Carson. And that's all great. But I think that there is, a, there is a tendency to sort of, once we discover what we like, to get into a rut and just keep looking for more of it. And I think one of the great things that happens in a classroom that anyone can do, whether they're in a classroom or not, is work hard to expose yourself to different, different traditions and different, different ways of thinking. How do you find these other, other ways of thinking? Um, then I find that like anthologies are really helpful. There are a lot of presses, academic and non-academic, put out interesting anthologies of nature writing and science writing that make it possible to really quickly just get an overview of lots of different ways of thinking you haven't thought of before. One anthology I've started using in my literature about the environment course that I really love is called Black Nature, and it's edited by Camille Dungy. She's a poet. But it's, it's this incredible anthology of poems that cover a huge time span and, and really put in one place a lot, of, a lot of perspectives and voices that are not traditionally classified as literature about the environment, as nature writing. Um, and I think that really expanding 
our, our broader cultural sense of what might count as nature writing is a really useful place to begin thinking about language and thinking about what it's doing for our relationship to nature differently. Going, going back to the classroom, and you sort of talked about this a little bit earlier with your students, but what do you hope they take away from your classes? I guess what I hope they take away is the, is the understanding that, you know, that we never see nature totally purely and objectively with fresh and perfect eyes, right? And that's not, that's not necessarily a problem. Um, in fact, I think it's probably a good thing. Like that, that's what enables us to build relationships to the natural world is, this, is the fact that we do always have some kind of subjective values coloring our, our interactions with other creatures. But I hope that they come away from reading from this, this broad and, and, and historically deep tradition. I hope they come away with an appreciation for just how many kinds of cultural mediators there are standing between us and the natural world. And, um, and they, become, they become a little bit more capable of seeing clearly the ways that even small decisions, sort of small cultural decisions really, can frame, our, can frame our attitudes and approaches. And I just learn to be a little bit more skeptical and thoughtful and self-aware about those approaches. I'm, I'm thinking right now about um, a great work of what's called eco-criticism. That is literary criticism that uses literary techniques to think about how environments and ecosystems are conveyed to us um, in various texts and venues. Uh, this great work of eco-criticism called Imagining Extinction by Ursula Heise, which is a, one of the most prominent eco-critics practicing right now, I'd say. And she talks about how even like the, the IUCN categories for describing um, the ecological status of species, right? Ranging from least concern to, to extinct, right? Um, and we get sort of like endangered and vulnerable there in the middle. Um, she points out the fact that the very best any species could ever be on that system is least concern. And that is really interesting, um, right? Like that is a, a linguistic and conceptual frame that shapes our entire attitude towards the natural world is always possibly under threat, right? So it's like always this place of uh-oh, or we're always worried all the time, sort of on edge. And it, you know, that, that, was, that was a presumably some committee's decision at the IUCN, and they could have changed that to thriving, right? Um, or successful, or something that would have conveyed some kind of positive, positive mood and, and, and positive emotions, and, they, and that's not what they chose. And there were probably strategic reasons for that, but it does shape the non-human environment, I think, in the consciousness of people who care about it as something that's always under threat, and you always have to be worried about it. And it creates this kind of escalating anxiety that's hard to escape from. And so just the ability to notice little details like that, and we're all not going to be incredible readers of cultural documents like Ursula Heise, but the ability to even notice that the decisions like that are being made when we're getting information. Um, if students can come away with that from, from, a, from a course in environmental humanities, I think that's a, that's a, huge, uh, that's a huge win. Absolutely. You mostly study Victorian literature. How were people thinking about ecological crisis then versus now? Yeah, another, another good and, and, and big question. Um, by the mid-19th century, people were beginning to realize that humans could have a, a pretty substantial impact on, on the natural world, right? They were beginning to pay attention to depleting natural resources, and it was becoming clear that, that at least some extinctions were, were primarily the result of, of human activity. So that was all happening you know, in the, in the, in the mid-19th century. And right around that same time is when you know, Darwin published on the origin of species and pretty much founded modern biology and I would argue modern ecology too. So there was thinking about ecological change and, and these anthropogenic human, human impacts, right? But 
at the same time, I, I, there was still for most of the 19th century, a, a deeply, at least in, in Britain and in America too, a deeply providential worldview, right? A, a religiously informed certainty that things were going to work out for the best, that some kind of divine hand would ensure that, you know, even if humans totally reshaped a landscape, that that was ultimately for the good. That was a positive thing. And so that, I think, sort of slowed or dulled the kind of concern that might otherwise have, have been cropping up in the 19th century about these changes that people were seeing. The concern that you do see in the late 19th century about human change and, and human impact on the natural world, I would say probably isn't ecological in the ways that we would use the term now, right? People were concerned about really two things, right? They were concerned about the ways that depletion of resources was a problem for, for self-interest, right? For profit um, or for, for long-term possibilities of civilization. So there's like this economic concern about changes to the natural world. And there was this growing, I would say aesthetic um, and to some degree spiritual concern, right? Like um, the earth was being made more ugly. The world was losing its beauty and some of its wonder and some of its awe. And that's the kind of thing that you see in the writings of the forerunners of more modern preservation and conservation movements, right? John Muir, you know, his, his writings are, are largely, when, when they aren't celebratory of the natural world, they're concerned about the way that what he saw as sort of like a divinely bestowed beauty and sublimity, it was being destroyed. Like essentially it was like a trashing a cathedral or something. And so there was this knowledge of, of human impacts um, and concern about it, but it wasn't based on a concern about sort of like the ability of a, of a system to regenerate itself and, 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 and sort of like the inherent value of biodiversity or anything like that. And so in that sense, it was very different, even if it's sort of the origins of our, of our modern environmental movement, it was the motivating factors were very different. That said, uh, it doesn't make them unimportant, right? If, if anything, I think that there's, a, there's one lesson that you can take away, and that is that um, even for, for people who, I don't know, who don't have a lot of interest in, in sort of like ecosystems um, or an understanding of ecology, there are still reasons that they might care deeply um, about our relationship to the natural world and about keeping that relationship healthy, right? And those reasons can be economic. Those reasons can be aesthetic. They can be about beauty. Um, and they can be spiritual. So it's not as if concern uh, for non-human beings always has to take ecology as its basis. There's a lot of reasons people should care about these things. And I think that you can see that when you sort of, you know, travel back in time to a, to a period when ecology as such didn't really exist. John McNeil Miller is professor of English at Allegheny College part of the Environmental Humanities cohort. There you can learn more about his work via the link you'll find on our website in the show notes for this episode. You can also check out the video profiling Allegheny College's sustainability work from last year's Western Pennsylvania Environmental Awards at PECPA.org, one of many places where you can tune into Pennsylvania Legacies every other week. We post episodes on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player.fm, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. And of course, you can peruse our full back catalog at PECPA.org. You can stay in touch with the Pennsylvania Environmental Council on Instagram and Twitter. We're on Facebook as well. And we hope you will join us for another edition of Pennsylvania Legacies coming up later this month. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council and for Lily Jones, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.